0: Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Allison Anna Tate, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Richmond School of Law. We will discuss her article, The Law of High Wealth Exceptionalism, which will be published in the Alabama Law Review. So, welcome to the show, Allison.
1: Thanks so
0: much. Oh, no, Yeah, I'm so glad to have you on. As you know, I've, I've been reading your work for a long time, and I found it really interesting and useful in, in a lot of my own work. And as I, so I was saying earlier, I, I really enjoyed this paper, which I thought was really well done, and also included a lot of information that I had just never heard of before. So that was just super fascinating, and I can't wait to, to share some of that with with listeners. So just, just broadly for, for listeners, um, your paper talks both about how wealthy families sort of co- conceptualize themselves as collective entities, and also how the law kind of favors wealthy families and enables the preservation and Accumulation of wealth. So, I'd, I'd like to address both of those issues, kind of in order, as as you do in your paper, and, and start with this idea of the sort of conceptualization of the family, um, and in particular, I was really interested in the way that you kind of characterize the family family self conception in relation to the concept of. Of sovereignty, which was really provocative and and interesting to me, especially because there were a lot of ways like it felt like there could have been a corporate conception as well, but you went with this idea of sovereignty. So I was wondering if you could kind of start by talking about how families conceptualize themselves and maybe also sort of why you think the sovereignty framing is the more appropriate one than a more corporate framing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just start off by telling you sort of how I got interested in this topic. And mm-hmm. I started off, you know, a couple of years ago, I was reading um, this book, which is a fabulous book. I recommend it to anybody who's interested in the topic of wealth management. It's by Brooke Harrington. Um, and it's called, what's it called? It's called Capital Without Borders. And what she does, she's a sociologist. And what she does is she, um, Interviews wealth managers. She also, I think, has actually gone through wealth management training. Um, but she interviews wealth managers and talks to them, and you know, sort of gets their take on, you know, basically what they're doing for clients, how they feel about that, <laughs> sort of the industry as a whole. And one of the things that struck me in all of the interviews was the language that the that the managers used and the language that they used to discuss what they did, but also to talk about how the families themselves their clients conceptualized their own wealth and it just struck me it was always basically about being isolated and being separate and being different and being unique and there was also all this very um sort of well language basically that 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 formed around um the idea of feudalism and talking about you know the estates and talking about you know guarding wealth and talking about you know protectionism and you know people talked about them. So there was one wealth manager who sort of saw himself as a knight protecting you know the client's castle. And so, what became very like very resonant for me was this this language about being separate and apart uh, from basically the rest of you know the rest of the rest of the community, the rest of like you know the rest of society, the rest of a nation. And, um, then part of that, as part of that book, I was reading, um, one of, uh, several of the wealth managers mentioned family constitutions. So I started getting interested in family constitutions and reading about them. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting, we have no data on how many people actually write these, um, you know, people don't publish them, we don't record them. So we don't know, but it's clearly, a, a heavily marketed product that, Wealth managers use for high wealth and ultra high wealth clients, and it struck me that this idea of a family constitution and the way it's just you know basically modeled on um, a standard, well, a democratic constitution, usually a U.S. Constitution, um, was basically an attempt to set up the family's form of sovereignty. And it could be, you know, it could you could also go in a corporate way in the sense that a, you know the family being a corporate entity, but this seemed like a definite attempt to be something separate and apart, which seemed to me to be different than like to have your own sovereign system, as opposed to just having your own special rules, which a corporation might do. So maybe,
0: yeah, maybe you could talk about this idea of a family constitution in a little bit more granular detail, because I just found that like incredibly fascinating. And like, the detail with mm-hmm. which these were described and sort of the kind of rationale for advocating this kind of wow. intentional kind of mm-hmm. family kind of self management.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So, all of the wealth managers frame it in um, frame the need for writing a family constitution um, around the idea that basically wealth is easily lost. Um, and I guess, you know, a lot of this would be for more newly wealthy families, you know, within like the first or second generation of wealth creation. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, talk about how wealth basically you know, rarely lasts for three generations. Um, and so what, you know, what's really important is to do something to stave off basically wealth erosion. Um, but you know, the, the examples that they use and the way they talk about it, it's sort of like, you know, don't you want to be like the Rockefellers or the Vanderbelts or some of these, you know, big, uh, families who have managed to preserve wealth over multiple generations. And what you need to do is basically come up with a strategy. And, you know, I mean, sometimes they say, well, you could have a mission statement or you could do this or that, but it's really about having a, a disciplinary tool, which is the constitution because it's about creating rule. A lot of it's about creating rules for people and not just having a mission to which they can aspire, but also sort of setting out rules. So, you know, they really, they're very um, literal when it comes to the whole idea of the family constitution and, you know, the family should get together. There should be a family assembly, Um, you know, depending on the size of the family, right. Then there might be a legislative uh, committee and there's a judicial committee and an executive branch. I mean, it's really, really literal, and, um, mm-hmm. it's really interesting, right? They talk about the, the way that this is, you know, it's very, you know, it's very Western focused. It's very, you know, sort of like understanding or assuming that like something that would look like a U.S. constitution is the best mode of governance around. And this is a great mode of governance because it gives people, um, it basically gives people rules and responsibilities. Now it's not as clear about what rights you have. So <laughs> that's a whole nother topic. Um, So it's definitely clear on like what you have to do basically to be a part of the family and to get your money, your family money. Like so maybe to get distributions from a trust or something like that.
0: One thing that really struck me about your discussion of the family constitutions was this emphasis on their sort of democratic or quasi-democratic nature, which seemed really odd because in a lot of ways, the format that was being described reminded me very much of, as you kind of allude to, like a feudalistic, like aristocratic model, Um, or in the alternative, maybe kind of almost like a mafia crime family type model. But I think of both of those as being really kind of autocratic, top-down, strong, kind of disciplinary, one-decider sorts of models. So I wonder where this dem- – do you think that de- the kind of the democratic emphasis is a reaction to kind of realities on the ground of what needs to happen in order for family members to accept this kind of model or more just like this is our familiar form of government and so they're just taking the model that's most familiar to people?
1: I think they are just taking the model that's most familiar to people. But it is interesting that right if the if the aspiration is to be democratic, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of lacunae in these documents or at least the models that they put forward in terms of how they match up with sort of democratic aspirations. Um, and I wrote a small small piece about that. Um, that's basically what's called "Is My Family Constitution Unconstitutional." <laughs> It focuses on the idea right that these these constitutions do have these democratic aspirations but if they want the if they want their family documents to live up to these aspirations there are things that they need to think about besides just what the family members have to do to fulfill their roles right we need to think about how to amend how to amend these documents right there should be amendment processes they have to think about um, they have to think about sort of you know, equal protection or like minority group rights. They have to think about, um, you know, a number of things that they don't, that the wealth advisors don't even talk about whatsoever, you know, like forms of due process, like all of these things that would be um, normally part of a democratic constitution are not, are not parts of these constitutions. And it's interesting because there are, there are a couple wealth managers who do talk about this and they talk about the danger of, uh, one in particular uh, talked about the danger of your family constitution becoming what he called a monument to the founder, mm. uh, which seems very likely, right? I mean, like you said, this is like sort of an autocratic, the way that it's presented is an autocratic document, basically like present, you know, started by the the, the wealth creator and maybe his family members or, you know, uh, but then, you know, without some of these mechanisms like amendment mechanisms or deliberations or some guaranteed uh, rights for people along with their responsibilities. It's not, they don't match up to the democratic aspirations. Um, and so, you know, I think when people, I, you know, and again, like I don't, we don't know if and how often people use these. I think they just think, you know, oh, demo, you know, it's a familiar form. They say, oh, it's a constitution. It's like, the, you know, it's like the U.S. Constitution. It has some sort of innate familiarity. Um, and so people think, okay, all right, you know, well, if ours is like, you know, if, they're, if there's, you know, if it's like the U.S. Constitution, then it must be good.
0: Yeah. So, so, so as I understand it, then these constitutions are intended to kind of, in a sense, preserve family discipline in yeah. the service of kind of maintaining and preserving and growing presumably wealth over time. D- do you have a sense or are they explicit? kind of the people describing and advocating these about sort of what mechanisms of this structure are most important in accomplishing that goal. In other words, is it like the sort of the formal decision making relationships that's primarily promoting this or a sort of value uh, dissemination element or some combination of those things?
1: Yeah, sort of combination. They, they focus mostly right on there's the executive branch gets very little focus. They focus mostly on legislative and judicial parts. And the legislative, they, you know, focus on basically, um, you know, and this probably is not a bad thing for any family, like making rules that will help, uh, you know, eliminate confusion. Um, a lot of the rules have to do with um, access to, to money, right? So maybe who gets distributions or how. Often distributions uh, come. Uh, who has a right to participate in the family business if there is one? Um, a lot of it, you know, some of the biggest drains, some of the biggest drains on family wealth happen around divorce and death. So it might be very common to have things like if you're going to get married, you have to have a prenuptial agreement, or things like that. Um, so you know, rules for people to follow. And then one of the other big things is sort of the on the judicial side is basically setting in place. This is almost like putting in sort of like an arbitration clause. It's like, here's the family committee that's going to decide what happened. You know, what's going to happen if you violate the terms of your, you know, say you do get married without the prenup. This, you know, this committee is then going to decide what to do. And obviously, like, you, can, you know, you what, what are the sanctions anybody's going to, you know, levy on you? Like, most likely the sanction is you're not going to get your distribution or you're not going to, you know, you're not going to get some sort of access to resources. Uh, but those are, a few, those are the most common forms of rulemaking.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: in in the
0: second kind of major part of your paper, you talk about the legal rules that facilitate family wealth preservation, like family trusts, family offices, private foundations. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how those work. Like, for example, what is a family trust and why are those attractive to high net worth families?
1: Absolutely. So I'll just go back for one second. In the, in the family constitution one, what I try to focus on in this paper is basically the language of exceptionalism. Um, so not so much exactly what the rules are, but the idea, right, that the, the family is exceptional and they're separate and apart. And part of that is, is just a discursive, uh, it's a discursive strategy, which is all of the wealth managers say, you know, you should think of your family as being very unique and you should craft your own history and you know you should basically have you know you're your own nation state so come up with your own history and come up with your own rules so the focus of the family constitution part is on this like push to, to, to exceptionalism and then what I do in the other one and with the part you're describing now is sort of see or examine how the basically what I call wealth rules wealth management rules map on to this idea of exceptionalism so not only do these high wealth families hear from their wealth advisors, like, you're special, you're unique, you're different, you're, you know, you're, you're your own, you're your own thing. Um, the rules actually do that, too. Um, and so I talk about private trust companies, family offices, and family foundations. And what I was interested in, I was trying to, to, to locate uh, spots within sort of the wealth law framework where high wealth families are actually exempted from the rules right? So it's like, there's lots of places where uh, high wealth families have a privilege in the rules, right? (laughs) Like rules benefit high wealth families, Um, like a capital gains tax, right? Like that benefits high wealth families more than low wealth families, benefits people who live off of earned income. But I wanted places not just where they receive privilege, but where they're actually exempted from rules. Um, And so those were some of the so those are some of the spots that I located where these high wealth families were actually exempt from the rules, uh, which sort of matched the same discourse, matched the same like conception of the families that the constitution had, right? You're exempt from the thing, the rules that most people are subject to. So a, fa- a private trust and company and a family office um, and foundations, they all kind of work together. Usually a family office could be a family office is basically the investment arm of a, of a ultra wealthy family. Um, And they will invest the money, they could invest the money that's, you know, parked in the family foundation, they could invest the money that's uh, sitting in the private trust company, but it's basically the investment arm. And what's special about the family office is that it's exempt from uh, certain forms of SEC registration. Um, And that's based on the idea that the family office is just serving the family, therefore, it's a private affair, Therefore it shouldn't be subject to the same type of scrutiny that a public uh, investment advisor would be. Um, And so again, they sort of benefit from this lack of registration. And when the rules changed, there was a lobbying effort on the part of high wealth families to get this exemption in the rules. And when the rules changed, there were a significant number of high wealth families who um, changed over their investments into family offices to Avoid this kind of registration. You get a lot of financial privacy. Um, you, you know, you don't have to. All of your trading is not. All of your investments are not uh, recorded. And it's funny. I was just looking. There's ever since this paper, I noticed family offices like everywhere in the in the news. And I just came across something today in the Wealth Advisor, and it said the number of family offices has risen by 38% over the past two years worldwide, uh, with firms overseeing assets valued at 5.9 trillion dollars. So there's a lot of money in family offices. And just in December, there was a big article in The Economist about family offices. So um, so again, all of these are sort of entities that are exempt in one way or another from regulation.
0: Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I found the, the discussion of the trust companies and the family offices really interesting because, I mean, from your description, it seemed like there were some ways in which there were aspects of this move about which i felt relatively neutral mm-hmm. or you know arguably maybe even positive in the sense that you kind of identified some ways in which well maybe this exemption from, you know, oversight and certain forms of regulation frees them up to make investments in areas where banks would lack the information or the risk tolerance to invest. And so they're sort of finding financial opportunities or kind of providing funding and liquidity in areas where other organizations wouldn't. But then there's also like, lack of transparency risks, and also potential systemic risks Mm -hmm. associated with them. I mean, I wonder if, could could you reflect a little bit on like sort of what aspects of of this move should we find most concerning? And are there elements that we should be less concerned by, or maybe even think are potentially a positive?
1: Right. I mean, you know, when you first first think about it, you think, well, I mean, that seems reasonable, right? These are family they're family entities, it's a family, you know, trust company, it's a family office, like it's just serving the family. So of course, they shouldn't have to, you know, go through the same sort of regulatory moves as a public advisor or public trust company would, right? Because like, it's a family. Um, so on the one hand, you know, it seems like it's not a big deal. On the other hand, I think where the where some of the harms come in, are like you said, the, the degree of financial privacy that being exempt from regulations actually provides to families, and, you know, not all financial privacy is a terrible thing, but in the aggregate with that with that much money at stake also, financial privacy could become problematic in the sense that, you know, these large amounts of money are moving around. Uh, I talk a little bit about shadow banking and the risks of shadow banking and, you know, reg- regulators not being able to recognize problematic trends, um, problems with liquidity if there, if there are crisis events, uh, things like that. So there could be, you know, this could be, a harm to the greater economy. Um, And the other harm is that with financial privacy, right, is that um, financial privacy, not always, but it does have the potential to enable a lot of um, evasion, right? A lot of evasion of financial responsibilities, mostly in the form of taxes. So you could have, you know, this sort of like tax avoidance going into tax evasion. Um, But the financial privacy allows you to, allows families to escape, a lot of uh, sort of regulatory monitoring that might catch these types of uh, slides into tax into tax evasion. Um, and, you know, in that way, also has the potential to take money out of basically, you know, sort of the tax base, which harms, which harms really like ordinary and low wealth families as opposed to the high wealth families. And this sort of goes back to, again, like just the idea, you know, sort of the concept of the families of themselves and who they are. And when I was reading the the book, I started uh, off talking about the capital without borders. You know, the sense of wealth managers and their clients was like government policies, like regardless of, you know, how much money they take, regardless of the tax rate, like it's all confiscatory, right? It's all bad. And the aim is to, you know, to decrease to, you know, the minimum uh, allow or the minimum possible, hopefully zero, any any type of financial responsibility to the larger state. Um, and then, you know, that does, that ends up benefiting those families and hurting um, low and ordinary wealth families. So I feel like, that's, you know, those are some of the harms or the fact that, you know, is it necessarily all bad? No, but there's a, there's a possibility for harm to the greater economy and the greater sort of common good that we should be thinking about when we think about exempting these family organizations that are, you know, that are investing and holding such huge amounts of money. Um, so that was one of the other on you know, like the family foundations and um, basically you know sort of like major philanthropy yeah yeah
0: yeah well so <clears throat> I mean one of the things that really struck me about your discussion of the the trusts and the home offices and the kind of lack of oversight and the confidentiality or privacy associated with them was how it kind of drives a wedge between the nexus of kind of financial regulation and tax regulation that, as you observe in your paper, show a lot of synergies. And when you remove one from the equation, it meaningfully affects the other. In other words, the IRS can't do its job as well in a place where we really would want it, I would think, to be able to do its job effectively Mm -hmm. uh, if it's not getting the kind of information that would otherwise get funneled from the SEC.
1: Right. So on the one hand, you know, on the one hand, uh, it's certainly, it's certainly, you know, as these families do say, it's like, this is our family, you know, this is our family data. Why should, why should the government have access or why should it be public knowledge? On the other hand, right, there, there are systemic risks that having, this type of financial privacy creates. And again, like the, the high wealth families are not going to be uh, experiencing the negative outcomes, right? If there are any. Mm,
0: mm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the the way that wealthy families use private foundations as well, because I, I got to say, I mean, for me, that was really the most troubling part of the paper, because it seems like there's a real chasm between this sort of theoretical justification for private foundations and how, at least in some cases, maybe far too many cases, it sounds like they're actually being used.
1: Yeah. And again, this is, um, you know, again, there's lots of family foundations that do a lot of good things. This is not necessarily, you know, this is not a condemnation of family foundations in, in their theoretical form, um, but they have been typically used for sort of holding money, warehousing money. And there has been, there's been a continued critique of family foundations or foundations basically as, you know, sort of the most non-transparent, right? Like non-accountable organizations possible. So I think there's like, there's two critiques, right? One critique is the the lack of transparency and the fact that you could actually just, you know, warehouse a lot of money, uh, not make huge distributions. Obviously now you have to distribute 5%, uh, but that's not a huge amount. And you can also, you know, you can also still... Um, spend money on your family's board meeting, you know, in the south of France or something like that. Um, so there's there's the, the possibility for abuse and the possibility that a family is you know sort of using it to to keep their money intact without making great distributions, uh, which is one problem, right? Which is clearly a problem because that's just an abuse of the of the entity and an abuse of the form. And then the other problem, which I talk about right, is the sort of patrimonial philanthropy and um, when we have the philanthropy on the scale that we do now, right. With these, with these ultra rich families, um, the, basically the, the use of family as a substitute for government and the role of high wealth, ultra high wealth families in sort of setting agendas, setting national agendas, setting government agendas, um, with their philanthropy. So it's kind of two distinct dangers.
0: So, so, I mean, from the perspective of the foundations, is is this a problem we can address or at least mitigate through changes in policy, tax policy, or other forms of policy surrounding the foundations themselves? Or is it going to be difficult to address in that?
1: I think so. so it Depends on you know the the former and the latter problem. The former problem could be addressed. You could you could increase um, the distribution amounts that family foundations actually have to distribute. You could you know you could require more sort of reporting, more accountability. Um, You know you you could place additional requirements on them. And there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of writing and talk lately about donor advised funds and the same type of things have been discussed in in uh, with respect to donor advised funds. Um, The second problem, right, the sort of like major, uh, you know, very big time philanthropy, that's I don't know that that's as easily solvable, because that's basically grounded in this like massive amount of this massive wealth inequality that we have. Um, And again, like it's, you know, there's, there's some very positive outcomes to this kind of philanthropy. Um, What's troubling is sort of the private, the private takeover of what should be a government function.
0: Right. Right. So in your paper, you also talk about potentially addressing some of these problems through estate taxation or kind of rethinking how we approach estate taxation in relation to some of these kind of legal exceptional tools that we offer. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how we should think about that because I think the estate tax and sort of the, the kind of concept of estate taxation has been out there for a long time, but the rhetoric has steered in a very negative direction.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, there's never been a more unpopular tax basically. Um, but I will say it's come, I think, You of, know, I think it's coming back. It's going to have its day. Um, it's hard, you know, when you think of solutions to these type of problems, um, I'm working on something about trusts right now, you know, and it's hard to say, I mean, there's certain things you could easily say, right? Like increase the reporting or with trust, you can like decrease the asset protection available or things like that. But every single, every single state, at least every single state in the United States is going the opposite direction, right? Because of lobbying by, you know, basically wealthy, uh, wealthy institutions, wealthy families. Um, So it's hard to talk about, you know, the possibility of changing a lot of the, the state rules around like family around private trust companies or trust law. Um, the estate tax is one of the sort of simpler, I guess, more elegant uh, solutions just because it, it, it provides sort of an ex-post solution. And it's you know, one of our few redistributive tools that we have. Um, and the problem, as you said, right, it's like basically been the least popular uh, tax ever um, it was, you know, the, the marketing and branding campaign around it to like to, to sort of make it unpopular to blacken its, its name uh, was very successful. Um, and so it's been, you know, it's been uh, pretty undesirable to think of that as a solution. I will say, though, I mean, just in the last year and in sort of this new, this new political season of new political campaigning that we're having and political protests, um, you know, you're hearing a lot more about not just estate tax but also wealth taxes. and there may be a new um, a new tolerance for some sort of estate tax or wealth tax. Um, I don't know, but you know you're seeing you're seeing the ideas come up in public debate and public discourse more than you have for years. So maybe that's a good thing.
0: <laughs> so so allison, in in closing, I wonder kind of if you could reflect big picture on the nature of the problem or problems that you're identifying investigating and sort of discussing or you know discussing in in your paper and in particular I'm thinking sort of of this concatenation of kind of family self conceptualization as well as sort of tactical or long term strategic use of different kinds of legal tools to enable the preservation of of wealth. And I wonder if if you kind of see the the big picture problem as being the accumulation accumulation and preservation of wealth itself or the kind of risk of insulation of that wealth f- from the tax base through various tax evasion, tax avoidance, tax um, kind of uh, like uh, confidentiality type uh, approaches to 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 kind of prevent that money from being put to other kind of more public oriented uses, or is it like a, a combination of the two? Are these like inextricable problems?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think so. I think overall, what like what strikes me about this, you know, sort of this uh, area or this constellation of problems that I'm trying to think about in the paper, as well as like other things that I've been thinking about um, is sort of how, you know, on the one hand, we have like lots of public discourse about, you know, about sort of big rights, you know, constitutional rights and, you know, sort of these rights that we all think about. Um, as being sort of directive of our lives and very important, and a lot of them social, um, social, you know, sort of social based. And then on the other hand, we have this entire framework and architecture of wealth rules, sort of rules about you know trust, trust law and corporate law, and even you know even family law. To the you know when we think about inheritance rules and divorce rules, this and they're all you know all of these all of these rules are things that most people don't think about. Um, not even on a daily basis, right, but most people never think about. And so while, you know, people are having the debates that they should be having about, you know, these very, like, very relevant um, social and political issues, there's, you know, just on the other, kind of behind closed doors, there's this major um, restructuring happening of, of basically what I call wealth rules, right? And they're being restructured to really privilege and benefit high wealth families um, and, you know, the corporations that they own and, uh, you know, the companies that they run. Um, and it's something that's just happening sort of off the radar. Uh, it's happening, you know, laws are being, you know, trust laws are being rewritten every day you know, in states across the country um, to, you know, basically do away with a lot of the traditional rules we had um, offering all kinds of asset protection that <laughs> trusts have never offered, right. Doing away with rule against perpetuities, And these are things that, you know, people don't think about, they don't know about. And, you know, so I tell my students all the time, there's like, there's no natural lobby for the rule against perpetuities. Like, nobody's going to come out and say, we've got to keep this, right? So there's sort of these arcane rules. And um, I was just reading Katerina Pistor's book, The Code of Capital. And she talks about this too, with respect to um, money rules and how, a lot of things are, you know, being rewritten in ways that sort of traditional policy would never have allowed, and they just, right, they just sort of go by unnoticed because it's not a, it's not a topic of conversation. So I think that's a huge problem. Um, so I think part of, you know, part of what the utility of these project these kinds of projects are is bringing to light what's happening sort of behind closed doors, right, and what 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 is happening to all of the traditional rules of like trust or investment or you know, uh, you know um, money management wealth management rules and um, it's not clear that there's a way to sort of go back on that to changes because the changes have such momentum and they again don't have sort of a natural uh, natural groups to object but I think part of it is just understanding really the way in which you know the systems around us are constructed by in large part, High wealth families to to benefit their interests, um, and then yeah, then the harder part is trying to figure out exactly how to uh, you know how to unbuild that or how to how to take that architecture and reshape it in a way that benefits a larger group of people, right? And that and that also doesn't allocate the burdens of you know bad outcomes on the majority of people.
0: Right. Well, Alison, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a really fascinating paper. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to you about it. And I hope listeners will will check out the full piece, because I, I feel like we've only scratched the surface of a really rich piece of scholarship.
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much. This was absolutely fun. And I'm so glad we got to talk. <laughs> Are we all fit? No. Yes, I, I think we are, Jan. Karen, put your uh, recorder oh, it's exciting, not so close it? to the mic. I want me tea. That's it, love. It right, let's it? go. Synchro start, that was.
0: Oh, very clever. The
1: wonders of modern technology. Do you know now when coming? Yeah, I do. Uh, 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 I asked her to dance. That was her! Uh, Plants. you got to know her better The
0: start of our romance Which ended at the altar We
1: had to, you see She was expecting my baby <laughs> Being wed, it's true That's a new dimension But sometimes I feel blue Post-marital tension There's such a lot to do
0: The kitchen exercise
1: It was a boy We christened him Darren And then we had to go She's
0: called Karen
1: they are pride and joy
0: The future of the
1: nation There's another on the way Stand by. Here we go. Big ensemble.
0: What we gonna be Happy ever after oh, The, the British. British family
1: Lives
0: happy ever after Every single day enjoy joy and laughter oh, The British family Lives
1: happy ever after Solo, Karen. Oh, now. now, go on, look. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, can you belt Darren for Very good, love. Very good. Right, reprise.
0: Are
1: Till this is done
0: I'm not I'm not doing yes, it yes you are it's rubbish Darren boring
1: come right, on Darren. stupid <coughs> Darren let it, it again now. come on why have I had it you've had it